0: Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Eve Simmons.
1: And I'm Ethan Ennals.
0: And we're health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week, we're asking why so few vulnerable people have turned up to get their autumn booster. As always, we'd like to know what you think. If you've got a question or something to say, you can tweet us at MedMinefield. Now, Ethan, it's officially winter virus season, and I know this because we both have colds.
1: Yay! It's brilliant.
0: But not bad enough to warrant us being out of the office, unfortunately. It would take a lot for that to happen. Exactly. But on a serious note, we know that at this very moment, the surge in winter viruses is causing quite a problem for the NHS. Not least COVID cases are on the rise again. Uh, I read that they're up uh, 37% uh, hospitalizations in the last week, which is pretty shocking.
1: And 50% the week before that. So we're nearing uh, doubling territory now.
0: And we've got this oncoming twin twindemic that all the experts keep warning about. But there is a weapon in our toolkits: the boosters, the autumn boosters. They're going to solve the problem. They're going to protect everyone, right?
1: And they're special boosters too. We've reformulated the vaccines so that they're extra protective against the newest variants, the strains of Omicron, which arrived since last winter. So these boosters are even better than the last ones. Mm.
0: But this week you've been investigating a problem that might mean that the booster programme isn't as successful as we've expected it to be.
1: Yes, exactly. A number of doctors and experts I've been speaking to have been raising the alarm over the particularly poor turnout for this most recent booster campaign. As of this week, just 40% of adults over 75 who are eligible for the booster have come forwards for it. And just 20% of the clinically vulnerable, those people who are especially vulnerable to COVID, have showed up for their jab.
0: And those are people like blood cancer patients and patients who need organ transplants, that kind of thing.
1: Exactly, yeah. People whose immune systems are weakened and haven't mounted a particularly strong response to the virus before. So these people who need protection the most and for some reason they're not showing up.
0: What? I mean, if anyone was to give me a booster right now, I would say yeah absolutely 100 percent. me too so why are these people not turning up for their boosters
1: well there's a number of reasons i think first and foremost is access Uh, we don't have those big vaccination centers like we did before lots of gp surgeries have decided to opt out this year of doing the jabs because they're really busy with all number of other things and that means that there are fewer places to get your jab there are enough jabs to go around it's very important to say that, but you may have to travel further for them or wait longer for them. One GP surgery I spoke to this week said they'd only just got their jabs this week. So uh, it's definitely more difficult than it was before to find a jab. But another big thing is vaccine fatigue. And if you don't know what that is, that is a regular phenomenon in public health, where over time, people get bored of getting vaccines.
0: And you've been collecting some letters from people who say, that's enough, I don't want any more. had my vaccines, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, um, really interesting too. I've spoken to some of these people over the phone. I I spoke to a woman called Sandra Adams from Congleton who's part of the ONS COVID survey. Do you remember this? It's where people sign up and they get certain blood tests and COVID tests. still going on. It's reduced, but there are a few people still on it and one of them is Sandra Adams, who's doing a very good thing for the country because it lets us all know how How much COVID is out there. But it also means that Sandra gets regular antibody checks, antibody checks being the level of uh, defensive cells you have in your body. And Sandra knows because of these regular checks that she has very high levels of antibodies. Now, she's obviously kind of aberration because not everyone gets these tests. Mm. But because she knows her antibody levels are high, she's decided she doesn't need another jab. She happily had all the other ones. She thinks are a very good thing to do, but she doesn't see any reason to do that because she's protected in her mind. And she's not the only one. I also heard from a woman called Bonnie Margo, who's in her late 70s, who said that she's had a flu jab, but she doesn't feel like getting the COVID jab. She said the reason she got the first three was to see her family abroad Mm. and she figures she hasn't had COVID. She's in good health she doesn't really see a point in getting the fourth. And I think someone like Bonnie really sums up where we are with vaccine fatigue in many cases because people felt obligated with the first three mm. doses. You know, we were all urged to go out and get them. And in many cases, you know, you were mandated to. You couldn't travel to certain places mm. or do certain things. And now that we no longer have those kind of carrot and stick, mm. if you will, mm. many people are, are deciding to take the decision for themselves.
0: They're seeing it as unnecessary. Exactly. It's non-essential. Yeah, I'll get round to it when I can be bothered.
1: Yeah, or not at all.
0: That's worrying. But I mean, the crucial question is, so what? So what does this mean for the fate of the NHS in the coming months?
1: Well, I think for many people who have now had three or four jabs, because as we know, there was the Spring Booster programme for anyone over 70, they may feel like, well, I don't need another jab. And as we've talked about on this podcast before, The jabs give you quite long-lasting immunity against severe illness because of a variety of uh, immune cells, T cells, B cells. But what we're seeing on the ground already is that the people who are going into hospital are those who are eligible for a booster and didn't have one. Mm. So I spoke to a doctor down in Devon this week. who works on a COVID ward. who said that every single patient who has come into the ward, and he said there's been a real increase in those, was meant to have had a booster and had put it off because they didn't think it was necessary. And he said to me, if this continues, and this continues across the country, then we'll be back in a position like we were early in the pandemic, where we're cancelling hip procedures, scans, heart operations, Ambulances will be piling up outside the hospital—a position none of us want to be in.
0: Well, that's already happened. I, I've read this week that at least eight hospitals have declared a critical incident, which means that they've cancelled operations and asked people not to come to any and such like.
1: And the second half that endemic hasn't arrived yet. We don't have any flu. Flu is expected to arrive later this month, so it's really important that people get these vaccines.
0: Gosh, well, perhaps now we should speak to an expert who'll be able to tell us a little bit more about why people aren't coming forward for their boosters. On the line now is Professor Paul Hunter, who is an expert in infectious diseases at the University of East Anglia. Professor Hunter, why do you think it is that we haven't had such a roaring turnout of people going forward for their autumn boosters?
2: Well, I think there's a number of issues here. The first is that in any vaccination campaign, not only just COVID, it's always easier to get people to come for their first jab than it is for their second jab, which is easier to come for their third jab. So there is a sort of a... A fatigue element that people think, oh, well, I've had one, that's probably enough, which clearly it it isn't enough. And I think as well, you know, a lot of people have probably had COVID in, in the last few months and are thinking, well, you know, maybe I don't need the vaccine. The concern would be if people who've not had COVID recently take that view and then expose themselves to greater risk of getting severe disease over the winter.
0: The level that we're at now, I believe it's about 40% of the over 75s who have had a Mm -hmm. booster. Is that concerning, given the point we're at in the season?
2: Well, it all depends on what's going on with COVID at the moment. If COVID cases weren't rising as they are at the moment, then that wouldn't be concerning. But sadly, they are. And so what we're seeing is that at the moment, over 50% of that age group haven't had a recent booster and are at a time when COVID itself is becoming more common again.
0: And so what needs to be done? Because surely at this point, we've kind of used every tool in the book to cajole people to come up and get
2: protected. What
0: what else is there left to do?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the big question, really. And I think the critical thing is that health services contact, particularly the more vulnerable people. I think making sure that, We've contacted people in care homes particularly and tried to make it as easy as possible for them. And, you know, I think a lot of the um, booking now for this is online and I think that's maybe causing problems for some of our more older independent people who haven't really got their heads around internet booking of appointments. So I think we do need to have some sort of follow-up of people who are in the, particularly the most vulnerable groups to check that they've actually been able to book an appointment if they want one. And if they haven't booked one, you know, is there anything we can do to help that?
0: Is there anything in the... Um, I know that we've changed the way in which we deliver these jabs now in the first and second vaccine dose uh, rollout. And even with the booster, the first booster, we had community teams that were popping up everywhere to give people jabs. And I know that's not necessarily the case now. Has that also played a role too?
2: Yeah, it's difficult to know because I haven't spoken to people who haven't yet had their vaccine, but it's certainly a risk, particularly, as I said, for the people who you most want the vaccine, the people who are most likely to get severely ill if they do get infected. And often these are people in an age group that maybe aren't able to cope well with internet booking of appointments. And so I think we do need to target this age group to help them book an appointment if they're struggling to do that themselves.
1: What about ad campaigns? We know that earlier on in the COVID era, we had ads everywhere. You couldn't walk without seeing one. But now this campaign uh, budget has been slashed and there's not any TV ads. So will that have an impact?
2: Uh, Quite plausibly, but I'm not an advertising specialist. So I don't know how much of an impact that had on people attending for vaccination. I think early on in the outbreak, you know, for the first couple of jabs, people were still actually quite scared, particularly people in these more vulnerable groups. And maybe there's been sort of a little bit of complacency rising in these sorts of groups that they think, oh, yeah, I've, I've had the vaccine so a few times and haven't really realize the importance of this latest job. I think probably in this age group, maybe what would work better is sort of something along the lines of actual contacts from health services, either written contacts or people from the surgery phoning up or whatever saying, look, you know, you've, have, you've not had your vaccine yet. Is there anything we can do to help you get a booking?
1: And would you be able to just quickly explain why it's important to get this jab? Because after all of this is one of many now. So what exactly is the science behind it?
2: Right. Well, I think the first thing is that vaccines for respiratory infections don't last forever. And what we see with vaccines is that the protective effect against infection wanes quite quickly over about six months or so. You still get some protection, but not really great. Fortunately, protection against severe disease lasts longer, but even that wanes after a time. And so if people have not had an infection already, and if they're in a vulnerable group, even if they've been vaccinated, they are more at risk of severe disease than they perhaps would have been in the early part of this year, because the protective effect against severe disease has waned a bit. It's still there, but it's not as great as it was early on in the year.
0: Well, Professor Paul Hunter, thank you so much for talking to us this afternoon. Thank you. So technology is to blame.
1: The internet was one big mistake, I think, is what we're why. learning here.
0: Well, yeah, that's been tabled for a <laughs> while. Know, Twitter
1: might be proof of that
0: but i think that that's a really good point i mean we certainly know that we get lots of readers who write into us as in properly write into us and mm. tell us that they are frustrated that they're boxed out of their gp surgery because they can't get in contact with anyone
1: yeah and we actually heard from a few of these people this week i i spoke to Quite a few people who got in touch with us this week because we got quite a few letters on this because people are, are, are really quite concerned. People do want to go out and get their jab, many cases. One man I heard from was a man called Brian in Stockport who um, has uh, severe lung disease, which puts him at risk. He's had all his jabs and he really wants another. But he's tried to use the online portal. He's gone on six times and each time he can't find a single booking. Mm. He's called up his GP and his GP says, use the online portal. He goes back to the GP and the GP says, call us again in three weeks' time and we might have something for you then, but we can't make any guarantee. One thing we're also seeing is people being told they can get an appointment But it's really far away. So I spoke to a couple this week called Maggie and Terry Nunn from West Dorset. Uh, Both of them have mobility problems. Maggie's got two hip replacements and Terry has had two cancers in the last year. So uh, neither of them are able to travel particularly far from the house without support. They were told that the closest jab they could get was 30 miles away Mm -hmm. and they would have to drive there themselves and they wouldn't get any support on the other end for Terry to get out of the car and be taken inside. That's no good. So they don't think they can go get it. It's just physically impossible for them. Mm.
0: But what is most intriguing to me is what you found out about this group of the most vulnerable, the immunocompromised, which I believe is about half a million yeah, or Yeah, so. the numbers
1: vary between 200,000 and 500,000. We know there's 200,000 very clinically mm-hmm. vulnerable and another 300,000 on top of that who are, who are pretty vulnerable too.
0: And at the beginning of the vaccination programme, both you and I reported quite a lot on this problem of this group not being able to get the number of jabs that they were entitled to. And there were many people who were absolutely desperate to get their hands on a vaccine. And now you've discovered that the opposite's happening.
1: It's really interesting that As you say, when these people were due for their early third dose, they were really fighting for it. And it's it's turned in its head now. I think a lot of these people have lost heart because a lot of these people go into hospital quite often and they will get their blood checked. And when they get their blood checked, their doctors will tell them how many antibodies they have. Antibodies Mm. are your main defensive cell in the fight against COVID and it's created by the vaccine. But many of these patients and studies show a pretty considerable amount of them don't produce any antibodies at all because their immune systems uh, have been weakened by cancer or organ transplant or medicines they take. Mm -hmm. Um, And what appears to be happening, and this has been backed up by what charities are telling us, is that these patients aren't coming forward now because they don't see the point. And that's really worrying because antibodies aren't the only cells which provide protection. There are T-cells, there are B-cells, there are all sorts of protection you can get. But these people are really disillusioned now and there's going to be quite an uphill battle. In fact, I was speaking to someone from NHS England this week who said Mm. that they're trying everything to get this group out and they don't really know how.
0: And do we know what kind of percentage of hospitalisations this group are?
1: We know that it's around a fifth of all COVID deaths in the last couple of months have been wow. blood cancer patients. Gosh,
0: so significant. I mean,
1: hundreds of these patients, even when COVID was low during the summer, mm. a good proportion of these patients were blood cancer patients. And as cases rise, so will hospitalizations and deaths in this group.
0: Well, we've got someone on the line now who can tell us a little bit more about the effect of the vaccine for this group of patients. Joining us now is Dr Penny Ward, who is Visiting Professor in Pharmacology at King's College London. Dr Ward, thank you so much for finding some time this afternoon. Only a fifth of the most vulnerable people in the UK have had
3: their autumn vaccine. Are you worried about this? Um, It is concerning since the rate of COVID seems to be picking up a little now that the schools are back in action. And... uh, It may only be a matter of time before we encounter our winter wave. So turning up and having your booster as early as possible would be a great idea.
0: But some immunocompromised people are seeing that they're getting no antibodies from the previous booster. So they're thinking, what's the point? Is there a point?
3: It certainly, for some people who have some degree of immunocompromise, a booster vaccine shot can produce additional antibody on top of what they already have, if any. For a small proportion of individuals who are very profoundly immune-suppressed, they may not respond to vaccines. And for that group, it would be good to have access to the long-acting monoclonal antibodies as a prevention, as an alternative to vaccination. Unfortunately, the use of that uh, product is still under review at the Department of Health. That's Evashield, is that, is that right? That's the one,
1: yeah. Professor Wood, you'd be able to explain to us why Evashield is so important for these patients. What exactly does it do?
3: Ebusheld, uh, along with a range of other products that are, are uh, available here as treatments, are an artificial antibody against the COVID virus. So shells has been shown in previous clinical studies to prevent COVID illness and severe illness in people who have received it before they were exposed uh, to COVID. Other antibodies of a similar nature have also been studied, but mostly as treatments rather than as prevention. And as I say, these, these antibodies are, are indeed similar to the type of antibodies that vaccinated people would make um, from their own B cells. Uh, but for the immune compromised population who can't make such antibodies, then they replace the antibodies that they would otherwise have produced by vaccine induction.
1: It seems slightly strange then that the government is pushing hard, if maybe ineffectively right now, at getting these people to have another booster when there's something else out there which would work even better. Does that even make any sense?
3: For a small proportion of people who are very profoundly immune suppressed and who won't produce antibody no matter how often they are vaccinated, that is the group of people who would benefit from having access to a monoclonal antibody to prevent illness rather than a vaccine. For some of the rest of the people who are taking immune suppressing agents, they will respond to a vaccine, just not as well as the fully healthy population.
0: Do you have any idea what kind of proportion of that group uh, won't respond at all?
3: It's probably about a third to a half It depends exactly on your definition of um, immune suppression. But the folks who are at most risk of not being able to respond to a vaccine are individuals that have been very recently transplanted, people with um, blood cancer who are being actively treated, and people with solid cancers that are receiving active chemotherapeutic agents which suppress the immune system.
1: And these are the patients who are most likely to end up in hospital with COVID as well. Isn't that right?
3: Indeed. They are also the people who are most at risk from COVID. And of course, they are the individuals who can have access to COVID antivirals under the Department of Health's current strategy.
1: I I guess one concern here, though, is that there is quite a considerable group from a estimate, make it several hundred thousand, of people who could benefit from these jabs but aren't showing up because they think it wouldn't work. So how do we get through to those patients, the ones who could benefit, but currently don't think it would?
3: I think the encouragement is that uh, vaccination doesn't just produce antibody, it also stimulates cellular responses to the uh, virus. So even if people do not produce a very good antibody response, they may nonetheless benefit from having some cellular-based immunity. And we don't measure uh, cell based immunity, unfortunately. That's not part of the testing strategy. Also, at the moment, we do not know the level of antibody that is most protective. We haven't developed something called the immune correlate of protection. And um, there has been evidence from clinical trials that uh, more, more frequent vaccination of the less heavily immune suppressed population does eventually enable them to reach the sort of antibody level that a normal person might produce with a couple of shots, whereas it may take them three or four shots to reach the same level of antibody. And then, of course, they would need more frequent boosting in order to maintain that level. Hmm.
0: We're now in the first week of October and currently um, about 40% of the over 75s have had a winter booster. Are we in a worrying position as we go into the colder months or is this where kind of roughly whereabouts you would expect
3: us to be? Because the vaccines have been rolled out in much the same way as the winter flu virus. And indeed, the vaccine delivery has been timed for some of the older population to match the arrival of the quadrivalent flu vaccine which has taken a little bit longer this year, unfortunately. So that is why we're a little bit later calling people for their vaccinations than we might have been last year when the campaign started in late August, early September. On the other hand, the advantage is that people can turn up and get both their flu vaccine and the COVID booster shot on the same day. So it reflects simply that we've moved away from running large vaccination hubs uh, in all the towns uh, around the place and move more back to the standard general practice stroke community pharmacy led vaccination offering. Mm.
0: With hospitalizations climbing pretty rapidly and cases going up it now. It would
3: be very good indeed to encourage people to come forward for vaccination. Indeed most people will have had who are in the higher risk populations, and the invitations have been going out as they did do in uh, 2020 and 2021 in age bands. So it started with the care home population and has been moving its way down the age bands. So, for example, in my own household, I'm uh, 68 and I've just received my invitation today. Oh, <laughs> and my husband, who's 65, has yet to receive his. <laughs>
0: There's one benefit of being four years older. (laughs) Well, Penny Ward, thank you very much for joining us on Medical Mindfield today. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, Penny Ward didn't seem that worried.
1: No, I think she seems quite excited to get her own jab. Yes. More people should take note.
0: Definitely. I would be too. Yeah, why can't we have them? I think surely it's only going to be a matter of time before you can just pay for one.
1: I think... That might be true. In fact, can you not pay for them already? Can you go to a private clinic somewhere and get them?
0: don't know. Maybe we should do some investigations. Oh, that could be a good one. Because <laughs> I'll be right out
1: there. <laughs> I guess the question is, how much longer are people going to need to keep getting COVID boosters? Is it going to be every six months? Is it going to be forever?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, do we know? Is there any understanding of what the long-term plan is?
1: Well, we get flu jabs once a year. Well, the elderly and vulnerable get them once a year. So I guess it's going to be like this forever now.
0: But what about the, I mean, we knew that some over 50s became very ill from COVID. And once the jabs wear off, you're going to get lots of 50-somethings, presumably, otherwise healthy, becoming very, very ill with COVID.
1: Well, the over 50s will eventually get called for these jabs. It it may take some time, but they're going to get these jabs eventually. Whether they'll continue to get them, Mm. I think we'll find out. Some experts I spoke to this week think that... This will be the last year of uh, boosters every six months, and I think it will settle down into more of a winter pattern. And maybe then we will start to have a conversation about who exactly really needs them and, and who can stop getting them. But for the foreseeable future, I think you and me won't be getting one. Mm,
0: that's disappointing. <laughs> and this winter, what do you what do you think? Is it going to be all doom and gloom and terrible, endemic? I think it's going to
1: depend on flu. We know what COVID looks like now. Touch wood. But um, we don't know what flu is going to look like because we haven't had it in three years. And we know that Australia had quite a bad flu season um, Mm. and we always follow Australia. And yeah, we don't have immunity, particularly because we haven't had flu. No one's had flu for three years. So we don't know what's going to happen when it arrives. And I think depending on how many people get flu and how many people get severely ill with flu, will have a big influence on how things go in the NHS this winter.
0: How do we know it's not just going to skip another year?
1: Uh, because Australia's had it, and Australia hasn't had it for three years, and they have had it.
0: Well, there you go. Yeah. Prepare for the flu. Yes. That's all we have time for on Medical Mindfield this week. You can find this and all the latest health news on the Mail app, or in newspaper form by reading the Mail on Sunday, or you can check it out on mailplus.co.uk.
1: And we'll be back with another topic on Medical Mindfield next week. See you then.
0: Goodbye.